Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. You know, kind of a rough start to the year for markets here. And, uh, you know, it's been a while since these markets have had to deal with a rising interest rate environment. And people are concerned about, you know, how will these risk assets really perform here in that type of environment? Let's check in with a professional who does this for a living, Jim Lowell. He's the CIO of Advisor Investments. Jim, thanks so much for joining us here. Love to get your thoughts. Like, what are you telling your clients as you know you kind of start 2022 and this is going to be a different environment than what most investors have had to deal with for the last i don't know decade plus what do you say jim <laughs> well one of the things we're saying is that any sort of selling on short-term rumors or news uh is welcomed by us because of course as long-term investors that means we can add to our best ideas at discounted prices something that was pretty difficult to do over the last year or two not to mention over the past decade where everything was going up like a hockey stick, in particular, of course, six or seven stocks inside of the S&P. We're also uh, pointing out that inside the S&P, those six, seven stocks that really drove its performance match the fact that the vast majority of stocks are either in correction or even crash-level discounted pricing. There's a lot of opportunity, both we think on the growth and the value side of the fence, as uh, you are a disciplined patient long-term investor. For, for traders, uh, I think I'd be, I'd be exceptionally cautious, but, but we're not traders, so we are relatively optimistic. Relatively optimistic. Jim, there's a lot of talk about a 50 basis point rate hike in March when you have the bond market really just pricing in 27 basis points. But of course, traders in particular uh, making the leap that that means perhaps two uh, rate hikes wrapped into one in as soon as March. Is that a line of thinking that you're taking seriously? Well, we certainly look at uh, all the opinions, both both respected and, and simply those that are broadcast and, and writ large on the daily headlines. But we, we're patient. We'll, we'll let the data and the Fed come to us. The Fed clearly has broadcast the fact that they are going to be tapering faster, raising rates more, potentially raising rates at a higher clip than is expected. I think consensus still expects the quarter point hike, the first go around, not a not a half point hike. But whatever the Fed, in fact, does, we think it's a little bit different this time around. They're not trying to fend off any sort of recessionary pressure. They're trying to tamp down inflation. And investors, uh, if they just look at the headlines, would think that inflation was nothing but negative news for them. But of course, it evinces organic growth, enough organic growth that the Fed is clearly concerned that things might get overheated. So that's an environment where we think uh, investors clearly can, can take advantage of other people's fears. Hey, Jim, we're just kind of getting starting beginning earnings season here. What are you looking for in terms of earnings? I mean, how critical is it for you to get some really strong earnings here in terms of trying to think about that P.E. ratio for this market? So we like to say that earnings drive the markets because for the most part they do, although obviously subject to momentum-driven headline and news. Uh, what we're looking for this time, clearly we're looking at, at the degree to which top bottom line sales uh, were or were not impacted by the latest virus variant. Um, but we're also very focused on guidance. We want to know where our best business leaders 
see their current state and also where they think they're going to go from here in the next quarter or two. It still remains a very difficult environment in which to forecast from, from virtually any business inside of any industry where one thinks one will be just a quarter or two ahead. But we're definitely looking at, I would say, guidance, not more so, but equally as much as we're looking on how companies are being able to continue to manage in the pandemic slash endemic that we're in. So how do you hedge against it? I mean, bets into, do you just do it through the bond market? Do you do it through big tech? Do you do it through commodities, for example, oil, copper? How do you, how do you protect yourself? So you could do it through all of those, but we're big believers that bonds are great bulwarks, great buffers for stock market volatility, cash for uh, outright defense, but also for opportunity. Uh, we think cash will definitely play an attractive role in investors' portfolio this year for do- both of those reasons. Um, we would uh, we would probably be hesitant in terms of trying to go on the commodity side to, to hedge our, our bets, mainly because the commodity side is purely dependent upon inflation lingering higher and longer than we think it may yet do. That said, we do have some tactical trading portfolios that, that are open to both commodities and currencies as ways of uh, hedging stock market volatility. Jim, I'm willing to take on a little bit of extra risk here. Should I be looking at emerging markets? I think emerging markets, established foreign markets, China, which is a market unto itself, all present long-term investors good opportunities here and now. Even out of this difficult starting gate for the U.S. market in 2022, we've seen the uh, EFA, the, the broad established foreign market measure, uh, even relatively greater strength than our own. We know there are opportunities. We know there are rubies in the rubble across the global, global landscape. But you're going to have to be highly selective. Uh, we think uh, finding good active managers with stellar track records in being able to turn over stones in the international market makes for for a good purchase idea here in 2022. You know, fascinating stuff. I love that you talked about emerging markets a little bit. I want to bring it back to the equity market because a lot of people, uh, and I think I can throw Paul Sweeney into this as well, is perhaps a little bit more optimistic on the value trade. The idea Mm -hmm. uh, that airlines, cruise lines, hotels essentially are going to come back. But we started that uh, kind of thinking at the beginning of 2021, too. And look how it turned out. What are your thoughts on that? Well, my thoughts are that uh, Omicron is not going to be the last variant uh, and that we are going to have to continue to be able to, to battle the, uh, the headwinds of a virus that's clearly capable of thwarting our, our best efforts and hopes uh, in terms of being more disruptive for a longer period of time than, than I think anyone priced in last year. We don't think that that changes this year. Uh, rather than be beholden to sectors that obviously would have a fire lit under them if we could finally turn the pandemic's corner, we like to invest in managers who have good track records, being able to find decent value in growth stocks and growth in, in value stocks across across the spectrum. So we don't think this is a time to be either style-specific or to try and bet uh, you know, even quarter of the ranch on, on one major value-oriented theme. But that said, we have begun to increase the weighting within our overall portfolios on the value side of the ledger. We definitely think there's some opportunity there. Jim, before we let you go, I'd love to just get your number one message you're going to your clients with today because there's so many cross-currents out there in the market. 
So my number one message is don't let short-term selling trump long-term views. The reality is that what happens today is going to matter infinitesimally less than you think it will three, five, ten years down the road. What will matter most is sticking to your discipline, hopefully being diversified, so that you can smooth out the volatility, come what may, there will always be volatility, and achieve the goals you hope to achieve while still being able to sleep well at night. All right, Jim, thank you so much. We appreciate that. Jim Lowell, Chief Investment Officer for Advisor Investments. They're based up in Newton, Massachusetts. Uh, a lot of smart folks up there in the Boston, greater Boston area. Okay, folks, the Aluminum Company of America, otherwise known as Alcoa, they are based in Pittsburgh, one of the great American companies. Stock reported uh, better than expected results uh, today. Stock's up 2% today, up 167%. Aluminum, who would have thunk it? Up 167% over the trailing 12 months. Our next guest gets a BA in Industrial Engineering and Operations Research from Virginia Tech. Who does that? And then gets a Master's at Carnegie Mellon. So I'm thinking this person likes numbers. Bill Opplinger, he's a CFO and Executive Vice President for Alcoa. Hey, Bill, thanks so much for joining us. I know you're, you're busy these days with your earnings here. Just give us a snapshot of what you guys reported with your quarterly earnings and then, more importantly, with, with your guidance. Hey, Paul, thanks uh, Thanks for that great introduction, and uh, thanks for having me on. We had a, a strong uh, fourth quarter, uh, recorded uh, close to a billion dollars of adjusted EBITDA, uh, adjusted uh, net, net earnings were $2.50 a share. Uh, we provided guidance uh, for the first quarter that said it, it would be as strong as, uh, as the fourth quarter. Uh, we're seeing some very uh, good underlying market fundamentals uh, in, our, in our industry, uh, riding the benefits of some higher prices. But over the last five years, we've really spent a lot of time trying to transform the company into the company that it has uh, become this year. And uh, in 2021, uh, the fourth quarter really capped off a very strong 2021 that was transformative for the company. Talk to us a little bit about uh, how you're pricing in simply some of these kind of new supplies that may or may not come. In December, you halted, and when I say you, Alcoa halted their primary aluminum production at its plant in Spain. You're also dealing with cut output from, of course, Europe, the rest of Europe and China. On top of that, you're dealing with potential conflict between Russia and Ukraine. How are you crunching the numbers on that? Pretty, yeah, we, we have seen uh, some supply constraints that have uh, come about in, in Europe, as you alluded to, with the higher uh, energy prices in Europe. Uh, we in Spain had to curtail the facility that we have there, uh, a little over 200,000 metric tons. We have seen uh, significant uh, reductions in capacity in, in some of our competitors also in Europe. Um, combine that with uh, some of the uh, overall structural changes that we see in China, uh, in that they are capping their their uh, their, their output uh, to a 45 million metric ton uh, capacity cap. Uh, really co combined with uh, some of the stronger market dynamics that we're seeing on the demand side has uh, has led to some of the higher aluminum prices uh, that that we're uh, that we're seeing today. As far as the Ukrainian situation goes, uh, the, the impacts of that are yet to be determined. However, if it does have any impact as far as uh, higher energy costs in, in Europe, 
that would put further uh, pressure on some of the supply side uh, in in Europe. And uh, aluminum is is largely you know very uh, energy intensive, and therefore uh, you know increased energy costs would put upward pressure on on aluminum prices. So remains to be term to be determined based on what the uh, response from other countries will be. Bill, you mentioned, uh, you know, aluminum is energy intensive. How do you think about your carbon footprint, you as a company, as an industry? You know, I'm sure you're getting uh, uh, some questions slash pressure from investors and other stakeholders about the kind of the whole ESG aspect of your business. How do you guys think about that? Well, we think a lot about it, uh, Paul, and uh, the industry itself is uh, decarbonizing, uh, and we think we will lead the way. We, uh, along with our joint venture partner, Rio Tinto, have launched a technology called Elisys, which is zero-carbon smelting. So it is a revolutionary process that takes the carbon emissions out of the smelting uh, process. And uh, uh, we will be uh, coming out with a commercialized package for that, or I should say Elisys, uh, the joint venture, will be ha- coming out with a commercialized package for that in 2024. And that uh, will lead the industry in low-carbon technology for, uh, for, for aluminum smelting. I'm just looking at your forward guidance here. A lot of this is based on just stronger aluminum demand, those persistent supply constraints. Any concerns around meeting some of that capacity? That's, of course, been a concern. When we talk about the oil market, for example, can you apply the same to aluminum? So on, on, on the capacity side, um, we, we have seen a, a very strong uh, demand growth uh, in 2021 across all of our end markets. We're projecting that that will continue in 2022, uh, and we will have demand growth uh, in, in, in the aluminum demand space. Um, so we will be able to meet some of that by some of the restarts that we are currently having in, uh, in, down in Brazil. We've announced capacity that will be coming online uh, later this year in one of our Brazilian operations called Alumar. We are also restarting a small amount of capacity in Australia, uh, so we will be able to meet some of that higher demand. Uh, in essence, though, across the industry, we are seeing a deficit of, uh, of metal going into 2022, uh, about another million and a half metric tons of deficit. So that uh, should uh, burn off some of the inventories that we see across the industry. Hey, Bill, when we have members of the corporate C-suite on, we love to just get a sense of you know, maybe how their businesses has been impacted by this pandemic. I think about, so we think about Alcoa, this is, you know, iconic aluminum manufacturing, industrial America uh, type company. How is some of the ways that your company, your business, your day-to-day has been impacted by the pandemic? Well, when, when the pandemic first hit back in February and March of 2020, we, we took action to make sure that we would be able to keep our operations running. It has not been easy, especially with the, with the latest uh, Omicron variant uh, spreading so rapidly. However, uh, we've, not, uh, we've, we've largely not been impacted from an operations perspective. We've been able to keep the plants going. Uh, we reacted quickly. We added shifts. Uh, we, we did everything we needed to do. So a real testament to the folks that are, that are running our plants that we've been able to keep that going. Uh, the rest of uh, the, the rest of the organization probably very similar to a lot of the companies that you talk to. We've gone to a flexible uh, work policy, uh, you know, to 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 the credit of many of the people that work at Alcoa. 
Uh, we've been able to uh, release earnings uh, as quickly as we do, even though we've been uh, remote. We've done a numerous bond transactions. We've done a lot of corporate activity, announced our first dividend in the fourth quarter, and largely uh, much of the staff continues to work remotely. And so how about the on the labor front, Bill, just quickly, 30 seconds. Are you okay on the labor front? Because we hear a lot of companies are not. Uh, the, the labor front, I'll, I'll tell you honestly, Paul, the labor front has been difficult, um, especially in certain parts uh, of the world. We've been able to work through it. We, we do that by making sure that our compensation packages are fair and competitive. Uh, but I really believe yep. that uh, the, the, the long-term vision of the company is, is one that uh, appeals to people, and, uh, and we've been able to manage through some of the difficult labor environments. Hey, Bill, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate getting some of your time. Bill Opplinger, CFO and Executive Vice President for Alcoa. The company just reported some uh, pretty strong numbers. The stock has performed very well over the trailing 12 months. You know, I think I'm probably like a lot of investors that during this pandemic, I've spent more time thinking about healthcare investing. You know, big pharma, biotech, healthcare services, because um, you think about how well these pharma and biotech companies did in terms of delivering a uh, vaccine to the world in such incredibly short time. Uh, it really makes you rethink kind of your views of healthcare. And our next guest certainly spends a lot of time thinking about investing in healthcare. That's Nina Decca, Senior Research Analyst at Robo Global. Nina, thanks so much for joining us here. I wonder where you guys are thinking about you may be where some of the best opportunities are in healthcare right now. Sure. So, um, as you mentioned, there's just been a lot of uh, really interesting and impressive um, demonstrations of technology and innovation over the last couple of years with the pandemic. Rapid adoption of telehealth, for example, um, we've seen uh, a lot of companies rise. Uh, but what we're not hearing, oh, and you mentioned the vaccines, of course, the rapid um, uh, uh, research and development and bringing vaccines to market. Now, as we look forward, we've got the next public health crisis, which is uh, staffing shortages. And that oh, is right. driving a very compelling need for automation, AI, uh, data integration technology, robotic solutions. So when we look forward, um, uh, in fact, we have a healthcare innovation ETF. The ticker is HTEC, H-T-E-C. It's comprised of about 85 companies, uh, half of which are small mid-cap names that a lot of people have never heard of. However, they're, they're driving fast growth, one of which is called Vocera. This is a company that helps to integrate all the different medical devices within a hospital and smooth and make the, the nurse's workload a lot more efficient. We need this type of technology as we move forward to deal with the fact that uh, the, the U.S. healthcare system alone has lost over a half million healthcare workers since February 2020. Uh, and then uh, Stryker just announced that they're going to acquire Bocera. This goes to show that there is demand for these, these integration capabilities. Healthcare just got digitized in the last 10 years. And so we're going to see a lot of investment dollars going toward this digitization and integration moving forward. Nina, that is fascinating to me. The, the, the combination of biotech and AI sounds like something from 2050, perhaps. Paul, I mean, Paul and I talk <laughs> about just the kind of very binary response when it comes to some of these biotech stocks and getting FDA approvals or clinical trial developments or everything. How do you price something like that? How do you, looking at just the monster gains that Paul was mentioning in the biotech space, how do you decide if you want to really enter the sector 
uh, at a time when this is, of course, very front and center? Well, interestingly, you mentioned uh, a great entry point would be now. Uh, if you look at the HTEC portfolio, it's trading uh, at around five and a half times next year's sales. Um, that that valuation is just not sustainable for these high growth technology forward uh, disruptive companies um, with with very most of which have very strong balance sheet. Uh, two thirds of the portfolio is net cash positive. So or I should say 55 percent of it. So um, so as you look forward right now, uh, these stocks have all really come in due to concerns about rising interest rates, inflation, um, tech stocks kind of took a back seat last year because people are concerned about companies that aren't profitable yet or don't have cash positivity yet. But when you look at healthcare innovation, uh, we are only uh, in the earliest days. We have just seen one type of mRNA uh, therapy come to market, and that is the vaccine for coronavirus. There are over uh, 20 other uh, uh, mRNA therapies that, um, that the company Moderna has in its pipeline. And all it took for is one to come to market for the rest of these to all uh, see some, some further um, uh, tailwinds for that industry. And that's just one area. Um, we're going to see more adoption of telehealth. We're going to see uh, early cancer detection. There's been over $10 billion worth of M&A going toward companies who are looking to acquire new technology to help detect cancer earlier. An estimated 100,000 lives can be saved each year if cancer is detected sooner. The technology exists, and now it's a matter of adoption. This is a huge multi-billion dollar market opportunity. There's a long runway for growth here, and this is a great entry point. Nina, we got to get you back. There's a ton more to talk about when you're talking healthcare, investing in healthcare. And again, I think a lot of folks probably have a greater appreciation for some of the opportunities in the healthcare investing space. Nina Decca, senior research analyst for Robo Global, uh, former sell side analyst at Piper Sandler. Piper Sandler's always had really good uh, healthcare research, and they've trained a lot of good analysts there. Today's Bloomberg Markets. Brought to you by Commonwealth, supporting more than 2,000 independent financial advisors with the solutions they need to grow a thriving business. Commonwealth, go where you grow. Visit Commonwealth.com to learn more. Well, I think the first lesson I learned on Wall Street way back in 1986 from Johnny Coughlin, the head of the block trading desk at Payne Weber, and probably the most valuable lesson is don't fight the Fed. So now I've got a Fed raising interest rates this year. They kind of indicated three now the market was telling me four, maybe as many as five. What is uh, a trader to do? What is an investor to do? David Kudla, founder, CEO, and CIO of Mainstay Capital Management. Hopefully he has some answers for us. David, how are you thinking about your Federal Reserve in 2022? Hi, Paul. Yeah, it, it's been, I think, more fun than meaningful to watch this uh, or listen to this bidding war that seems to have been going on the the last week as to who can call for more rate hikes or uh, uh, a higher basis point rate hike. We, you know, we had Jamie Dimon uh, last week at this time talking about six or seven uh, rate hikes this year. Bill Ackman uh, one-upped him with 50 basis points at the first March hike. And then uh, JP Morgan's global CIO of fixed income earlier this week on Bloomberg talked about eight rate hikes in 2022. And so I think, you know, investors need to take that for what it's worth. Uh, these are smart people that have good ideas, but, 
you know, we think that you know, the market is priced in somewhere around four rate hikes right now. And uh, we expect, and there could be another pivot by the Fed uh, as we get towards that March meeting. We have CPI coming out just six days before it. And talk to me a little bit about just, I mean, we've talked about the amount of, of rate hikes that, of course, the market is pricing in. There's also been this thought that what if uh, every meeting just comes with a rate hike? It's kind of a, a two-in-one, if you will. Uh, at what point do you start to see the bond market, the equity market, or even the underlying economy have an averse reaction to that? You know, it's interesting. When we look back historically, uh, there's a lot of anxiety leading up to that first rate hike. We're seeing that right now, uh, and we're seeing a lot of that. Almost seems like a near panic these last few weeks with the 10-year, two-year uh, getting bid up uh, really uh, across the whole short and intermediate uh, term portion of the, of the yield curve. But as rate hikes start, uh, we sometimes will see you know the market settle down a little bit. The equities tend to do okay. It's it's probably going to be more important about you know where investors are uh, looking to have their exposure and what they're going to do about volatility in 2022 because we expect it to be quite a bit higher than what we've experienced really the last 22 months uh, since since the pandemic started. Uh, we've had very low volatility. We've just now broken uh, a record for a, a pullback for the S&P 500 uh, through yesterday. So. You know, I think it's important for investors that they look at uh, with the Fed, not as as Paul kicked off the segment with, don't fight the Fed. So when the Fed has been easing these long duration stocks, tech stocks, even you know the growth stocks that are non profitable that were highly leveraged did very well because of so much money sloshing around. That liquidity is now going to be drying up, and so we think that points us to uh, the high quality names with good free cash flow profitable, good balance sheets. Uh, and that's in either growth or value. But we think it's important that if, if investors haven't done it yet, that they're bringing more value into their portfolio because this will be a year for value. Uh, but most importantly is companies that uh, not necessarily an exercise bike with an iPad, but companies <laughs> that are, are highly profitable, high free cash flow, very strong balance sheets. I like my exercise bike with an iPad. I think I must might even have like 130 <laughs> rides or something. How about Paul's that? a Peloton man? Yes, folks. I'm a Jen Sherman uh, fan. Um, nothing, no, nothing. I don't, and I don't mean that as a claim <laughs> against the product. Uh, not at all. Just, just uh, you know, there's a lot of other examples out there of yep. of stock that did so well during the pandemic or during you know this period of 120 billion dollars of stimulus to the to you know the it, let's face it, in, in the financial system that finds its way to stocks. And, and that's let those stocks continue to get bid up. And we're seeing the we're seeing the air come out of those now. We've all heard the statistic of, you know, 50 percent of the or 40 percent of the stocks in the Nasdaq are down more than 50 percent. Um, it, it's it's been it's been a bloodletting. Yeah, absolutely. Growth stocks. All right, David, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Once again, we always appreciate getting your perspective. I'll tell you, I think of all our guests, Critty, David's got the strongest social media game. I mean, Does he? Uh, yeah, it'll be all over do my Twitter Do I need Twitter to follow feed. you on Twitter? You do, absolutely. <laughs> you need to follow him. David Kudley is the founder, CEO, and CIO of Main State Capital Management. He also is a founder and sponsor of Engage. That's the world's largest student stock pitch 
competition conference. It's hosted at the University of Michigan. It's a really a great event, uh, getting some young folks to really think about investing uh, in the stock market. And uh, David's been a, a founder and sponsor of that, so that's really cool too. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.